Good morning. We're going to read this morning from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We are in the third week of this He Gets Us series. And Jesus is speaking. Do not judge, or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured out to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. Watch this for a moment. Okay, so I have a confession to make. I'm a judgmental person. You might not think it to look at me. Then again, maybe you would, if you're judgmental like me. But I don't often take the time or energy to put myself in someone else's shoes. I kind of thought it would be easier once I became a Christian, but it's not. It actually got harder. But somewhere along the way, I got the idea that it was my job to discern others' faults so that I could steer them on the right path. Wait a minute, is that what the Bible says? You see, at the end of the day, I'm really just a selfish person. My thoughts and my actions, they're usually based on my own little world and how I perceive it. It's easier just to look at the little clues about people, feed them into my own little formula and spit out my analysis of who I think they are and how right or wrong their behavior is. The real problem is that I get so fixated on people's actions, I completely miss out on their heart. I don't put myself in their shoes at all. I want them to wear mine. stop to look at the core of someone's behavior, I realize they're not so different from me. They have the same struggles that I do, the same desire to connect to something deeper than this physical world around us. They just have a unique expression of what it means to be human. That is the frustrating beauty of God's children, so unique yet so alike. There was one person who really understood this whole idea of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. He could look past the stench of a common fisherman and see the rock that the church would be built on. He watched as a prostitute poured perfume on his feet and he rebuked the religious elites who whispered, wasteful. He looked at a woman caught in the very act of adultery and defended her by challenging the stone throwers to look at their own hearts instead. His name is Jesus, and his example stands before us. So I have to ask myself, whose shoes am I being asked to walk in today?
Let's pray for just a minute. Father, thank you for the way that Jesus has come into the world and has communicated to us so well and demonstrated us so ably your heart, your perspective, and the kind of heart and perspective and mindset that you want us to adopt. We are drawn to Jesus, obviously because he's your son, but also because he was so full of wisdom and grace. We need that every day. We pray for your continued refining work and those of us who know you, that we would not only say words that reflect Jesus, but that the condition of our hearts and minds would become more like Jesus day after day, week after week, year by year. I believe our world needs this because our world needs more of you. Guide us and help us. Send your spirit to mold the way that we act, the way that we choose our words, the way that we treat others, the way that we see others, the way that we see ourselves. And use us in this process where you are taking broken things and making them more beautiful than we could ever have imagined. Use today for our sharpening, for our faith development, for giving us a a more true benchmark in terms of the direction where you are taking us and what do you want us to be like. Lord, guide us as a church as we try to navigate our way through changing times and challenging seasons. We, as we give, we pray that you will maximize all of those efforts so that we can meet the goals that we have as a church and accomplish what you want us to accomplish as a church. Use our gifts and our talents that the way that we serve would have impact on our neighborhoods, on our towns, and right here in Pembroke. We pray that you would be at work in our families. For those who know you and trust you, we pray that you would take them further. From those that thus far have held you off or have not embraced you in faith, we pray that somehow you would put other people in their paths along with us, that they would hear words of truth, that they would see someone who walks in the footsteps of Jesus and treats others the way that you would. We pray that you would lead each of them to a saving knowledge of who you are and to finding the joy of Christian life. Lord, use this morning to further all of this work. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a woman at the airport, and she was checking her luggage. After watching her bags move away on the conveyor belt, she felt relief. She had a couple of hours to kill before boarding would start. So she decided she'd go to one of those little shops. She'd get a drink, a package of cookies, and a magazine to read. And when she got back to the gate, she took a seat. Soon a man took a seat in the same row next to her, and he he left one seat open between them. And she opened her magazine. She got lost in what she was reading. And after a while, she reached over to the empty seat between them, and she grabbed a cookie from the package that was next to her, and she began to eat it. And when she did, she noticed that right after that, the man seated one seat away reached over, and he took a cookie from the same seat, and he began to eat it. And she was incensed, thinking, who is this guy? What does he think he's doing? He's eating my cookie that I just paid for. And she decided to ignore it and let it go, and maybe it was just one of those things. And 
A little while later, she reached over again and she took another cookie and she pulled it up to eat it. And just as she was pulling her hand out of the bag, the man reached over and he took one from the same bag as well. And, and he began to eat it. And, and she looked at him and she shot him this dirty look like, how dare you? What do you think you're doing? And he just kind of winked at her and she thought, this is outrageous. This is crazy. And a little while later, she's reading her book again. She reached over and she felt in the bag and she took the last cookie and she ate it. And just at that point, the man reached over and like he was going to take one too, but the, there weren't any left. And at that point, she thought, this is outrageous. I'm deeply offended. And she moved all the way down the row and got another seat. She sat down. She got all of her stuff ready. She pulled out her purse and she reached into her purse and she found her bag of cookies <laughs> and realized that she'd been eating from his bag of cookies all along. How easy it is to judge someone else when we don't have a firm grasp on all the facts. Have you ever noticed that? Today we come to part three of this He Gets Us series, and we're talking about Jesus, the non-judgmental judge. So good morning. Welcome to North River. I'm glad that we can laugh at ourselves a little bit because I'll bet that you've done something similar to that lady's dilemma. I know that I have at different times. We get the facts just, a, just slightly off, just a little bit wrong, and we very quickly move to that point of hostility and anger, and we're completely wrongheaded. Well, welcome. If you've done that, you're in the right place. I love learning with you, and I love learning from you as well. Welcome to everybody who's watching online today. We're glad that you are with us as well. Uh, if you can see the chat line, sign in, tell the host where you're watching from. If you have a question, I hope you'll type it in there and the host will either try to answer that for you or they'll bring that to me later on. When you're ready, I hope you'll fill out a connection card so that we can begin a conversation together. And welcome to everybody who's here in the worship center this morning. I, I love it every once in a while when the music stops and the singing goes on. Did you notice when Ashley stopped playing and your voices carry out? And it's, it's nice to know that you're involved in worship. You're not a spectator, that we are doing this together. And there's a lot of energy in the room this morning, and I love that. Let me also thank anybody here who's invited a friend. In the past few weeks, I have met people who started watching online because a friend told them about our church and this was the safest way to check things out. And then after several months of watching, they decided they would take the risk and, and come here on a Sunday. And it's, it's, it's really fun when you meet somebody and they say, well, it's my first Sunday here, but actually I've been a part of North River for six months or eight months and you just didn't know it. That is so cool the way that keeps happening. And perhaps there's somebody in the room here today because a friend told you about our church and invited you. And I hope that you'll stay around a little bit, have a cup of coffee. We'd love to hear your thoughts and your questions about all of this. Two weeks ago, we launched a new series that focuses on the life of Jesus. It's called He Gets Us. And there are a number of churches around the country, literally hundreds of them, that sometime this spring or early this summer are following through the, uh, a similar set of, of messages. And... Uh, Part of what triggered them was a series of ads under the He Gets Us heading that started at the Super Bowl. And our topic this morning comes from one of those chapters in the little book, He Gets Us, about the non-judgmental judge. And here's the question that I have. You've probably heard the phrase, do not judge or you will be judged, and know that that comes from Jesus, whether you've been attending church for a long time or not. But do we really understand what Jesus said about not judging? 
So let's talk about Jesus, the non-judgmental judge. We find ourselves, and most people in this world, longing for a no-judgment zone. That's where we start this morning, longing for a no-judgment zone. So Jesus starts off in the first two verses here of Matthew 7. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured out to you. Matthew 7, 1, that opening verse is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It comes to us as the lead-in to a major section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, the Sermon on the Mount remains the most well-known speech of all history. On that day, Jesus climbed a small mountain and he addressed a crowd of thousands of people who had gathered to hear him teach. The core of that sermon talked about a number of outrageous values of the kingdom of God. And in several ways, Jesus revealed that kingdom values run contrary to the way that our world often works. Many people quote this particular verse and insist that Jesus was forbidding all forms of judgment. But here's my question, is, is that really what Jesus had in mind, and, and is that borne out by the context of that statement? Verse 1 lays out a principle, judge and you will be judged. What is that saying? The more we point out the sins, the failings, or the faults of others, the more our own sins, failings, and faults will be exposed. This is borne out by the backside of that equation that we find in each of the first two verses. Judge, and you will be judged with the same measure that you judge others. That measure will be applied to you as well. So Jesus was, in effect, presenting an axiomatic principle that is universal, that applies in every time and every culture. There's a what-goes-around-comes-around factor in regard to judgment that exists in our world. The more you and I judge each other, the more we will be judged in the same way. That is what Jesus is saying. So why does Jesus present this principle to his followers? The most obvious reason is that Jesus was instructing his followers to pay attention to the downside of our spiritual progress. Rather than looking at others, we need to look at ourselves. Why is that important, you might ask? It is always easier to deflect attention from our own failures and shine the examination light on the flaws of someone else. What Jesus wants us to do is shine the light on ourselves in this regard and to look at ourselves first. When we, when we deflect the attention and shine it on someone else and we ignore our own spiritual development, we fail to grow spiritually and personally because we ignore our own flaws. We also help to create a judgmental culture which can become toxic in any environment, a toxic culture of judgment. So let's be honest about something that church people and our culture at large have in common we long for a no-judgment zone. We long for a place that is safe for us to grow in a healthy way without fearing that at, at the slightest mistake, somebody's going to come down on us. Here's the second thought. Jesus pointed to something better than what most of us have experienced through life. In verse 3, he begins to ask a question. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? And notice what he says in verse 5. You hypocrite. 
First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from someone else's eye. So while our world longs for a no-judgment zone, that's not exactly what Jesus had in mind. How do we know that? Well, the context of these next few verses reveals that to us. He used the example of stuff that gets lodged in your eye. In doing this, he contrasted a speck of sawdust with a large splinter or log. You wouldn't expect to see a person with a large splinter or a log sticking out of your own eye try to do eye surgery on someone who has this minuscule speck of dust in his or her eye. So what was Jesus doing? He wanted to make this clear, so he employed the tactic of appealing to absurdity. The contrast sounds absurd because it's intended to be absurd. So Jesus paints a picture that is so absurd that it would have drawn laughter that day as he was delivering the Sermon on the Mount. It might look something like this. Do we have that next slide? No, we don't. We're having technical troubles today. I didn't know that. Um, There we go. So here you got the guy on the left saying, dude, I think I got something in my eye. You got the guy with this two by four sticking out of his eye. Hey, don't worry, I'll help you get it out. Uh, it's, it's meant to be absurd. Nobody would, would imagine that, that somebody could be so brazen as to operate on somebody else in that kind of condition. About eight months ago, this illustration was driven home to me in a very personal way. I woke up one Saturday morning and I rubbed my right eye because there was something that was irritating in it. And I thought, okay, when I took my contacts out last night, something was probably irritating my eye. And then as I looked, it seemed like there was this black half-moon shape that was taking up the bottom of my right eye. And I started to get concerned about that. I never had that experience before. It happened to be a morning when we were having a, a guy wire event, so I showed up early on Saturday morning. I'm sitting in the back row back there. And I happened to sit next to, to um, Gordon Price. Gordon spent his entire career as an eye doctor. And when we had a break, I told him about this dark half-moon circle that had shown up on my eye early in the morning, and it wasn't going away. He talked calmly to me, gave me a couple of ideas of what it could be, he, and then he urged me to see my eye doctor if it didn't go away on its own in a couple of days. Well, that led to a whole battery of imaging tests on my right eye that played out for the next three or four months. It turned out that something had briefly stopped the flow of blood to my optic nerve on my right eye, and so there was a little dead spot. But within a couple of weeks, my eye had formed a workaround, and there was a new little capillary that began to bring blood into that area of the eye, and slowly that black cloud that I was seeing every day just dissipated and and went away. When I spoke with Gordon that morning, here's what he did. He calmly spoke to me about what it might be, and he told me what it might not be. Then he told me to get some rest and to seek help if it didn't go away in a couple of days. And then he prayed for my eye and for my vision. A couple of days later, I got a phone call, and I got an email, and I got a text from Gordon, all three, as he was following up with me just to see how I was doing. Notice what he did not do. He did not instantly lay me down on a chair in the back room of the worship center while this guy wire event is going on and start picking at my eye. Even though he had spent his entire career looking into other people's eyes and trying to promote that kind of wellness for their vision and eyesight. And he didn't panic. He didn't tell me that I must have done something wrong and immediately start telling me all the things that had led to how I'd made this condition happen. 
From his experience, he let me know that I needed to give this immediate attention if it lasted more than two days. And that calmness helped me realize this wasn't all that atypical. It was unusual for me, but most likely it would go away in a little while. Jesus was urging us to stop making inappropriate, quick judgments. And he used absurdity to make the point. There are some things in life that we should just let go when we notice the flaws or the sins of somebody else. Minor things that will self-correct. They don't need somebody else to point them out because they aren't that significant and perhaps they are fleeting. There are some areas of our lives that will need immediate attention. So when we speak up, we need to speak to each other calmly, kindly, reassuringly, not like the judge who's coming down on somebody. And we should point out those who might be able to help with expert skills. And if we really care, we'll also follow up that conversation and help the other person who's in need. But we are not authorized to jump on someone else or render judgment because all of a sudden we have a little bit of insight. Let's talk about why we struggle to get this right. Jesus points out in verse 5 that sometimes we can be hypocrites when we mess up in this area. He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck of dust from the other person's eye. Why do we struggle to get this right? One reason is it's easy to fall into the judgment zone. Sometimes it feels really good to sit in judgment over someone else's behavior or someone else's dilemma. It feels good because it allows us to feel a little bit more morally superior to somebody else. Another reason is that our culture engages in doublespeak in regard to judging others. For instance, our culture loves to pounce on Christians who appear to judge other people. Ever notice that? Sometimes you're, you're going to get hammered if you say the wrong thing and you appear to be judgmental in our society. Yet, our culture also relishes imposing its own culturally elite and ever-changing values on someone else. We live in a more toxic environment that way within our broader culture as values are imposed from one sector of the community or another on others. And if you're behind the times and you don't understand, oh boy, uh, you can get hammered. Sometimes we confuse discernment and judgment. Discernment says, that looks like a really bad idea. I'm going to avoid that. Judgment leaps in and says, why would you do something that's stupid? Jesus never intended us to avoid being discerning about life's good and bad choices. That's why Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by telling us to build our houses on the rock and not on the sand. He wants us to build on on truth and on, on values that hold rather than on something that's going to shift and blow down in the midst of a storm. Sometimes we, we confuse discernment with judgmental declarations. So discernment says, look, your eye has some irritation. Would you like some help? A declaration says, if you don't let me fix your eye right now, you're going to go blind. Probably not true. And sometimes we just don't have all the facts. Let's take on like the the age-old dilemma on how to dress for church. I'm old enough where I've been around to, re, around to remember the days when we wore suits and ties and dresses every Sunday to church. 
In fact, my job as a kid was to shine all the shoes in the family on Saturday night and get them all ready so that we'd be ready to go. But all of that is a cultural standard. And those standards change over time. In the last few decades, we'd gone from dress up to business casual to come as you are to Hawaiian shirts and ripped jeans. And when we judge people in the way they dress, we rarely have all the facts. What if you sit in judgment on the way that somebody else dresses when they come to church? Do you have all the facts? I'm just picking on an easy case because that happens around us. Perhaps you don't like the way that a young person wears ripped jeans. What we don't know is the battle that that kid's parents may have had all week long just getting that teenager to church. You know what I think? I don't care about the ripped jeans. I care more that the kid is here listening to the gospel and the the person is here in church. The ripped jeans, that'll be a fad that'll go away in a while. Or not. Maybe it'll be something else that you don't like after that. But in every generation, parents have battled with teenagers over style and dress and what's appropriate. The most important thing, though, is are they learning to follow Jesus? Not the exterior stuff. So discernment would say, just get them here. That's half the battle. So mom and dad, we've got your back on this one. We're not going to care about the ripped jeans or anything else like that around here. Here's the big idea for this morning. Jesus excelled at accepting people even when our patterns need to change. Jesus had this amazing ability to come alongside people, all kinds of people, the most unlikely people, the most unreligious people, and to accept them where they are, even though he knew there were a lot of things that needed to change and would change over time. Why? How did Jesus do that? Leads to our fourth discovery. Jesus was the master of acceptance without approval. What I mean by that is Jesus didn't approve of everything that everybody did that he got close to, but he accepted them nonetheless where they were at. Luke 15 gives us one of those examples. Here in the first two verses of Luke 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Remember how hanging around with this crowd got Jesus in trouble with the religious crowd? Luke tells us that the tax collectors who were often the most corrupt or among the most corrupt and various kind of sin addicts were gathering to hear Jesus. And the super religious crowd started muttering and they got upset. I'm not sure if you realize it, but these two verses in the opening part of Luke 15 were the backdrop for telling three back-to-back parables. The parable about the the lost sheep and the lost coin and finally the lost son or better known as the prodigal son. Jesus told those stories because of the muttering that was going on in the overly, overly religious crowd. Why did the tax collectors and the people that the Pharisees couldn't stand flock to Jesus. That's the description that we have here in Luke 15.1, that all these people were gathering around to hear Jesus. The answer is that Jesus mastered this art of acceptance without having to approve of everything that was going on in their lives. So he went to the home of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, for dinner one day while the overly religious crowd again muttered and complained. 
We have no knowledge of what happened inside of that home. We have no knowledge about the conversation that took place. But we do know that when Zacchaeus emerged, he said, look here, here and now I, I, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And then Jesus pronounces to the crowd, today's salvation has come to this house. And he's marveling over that. And in fact, he, he's, he's blessing the change that started to happen in that guy's life. There's another scene that happens in John chapter 8 where Jesus refused to judge a woman who'd been caught in adultery. You probably know the story. It was a trap that was set up early in the morning. There's a crowd that gathered and Jesus is brought out to the crowd and a woman had been caught in an adulterous relationship and he was dragged out before all the religious crowd again and they picked up stones and according to the law of the Old Testament, they were going to stone her to death. But before they did, they wanted Jesus to render a verdict. And Jesus stood there in front of the crowd and instead of judging her, he drew attention away from her. He, he got down and he started to, to draw in the sand. We don't know what he drew. Some people speculate. They think that he was drawing or writing out some of the words of the Ten Commandments or he was writing out the sins of the people who were holding the rocks. But all the while he did this, he was deflecting attention from the woman who was probably terrified. She'd been caught in a setup. Where was the guy? That's the problem most of us have when we read that scene. How do you have adultery going on and there's only one person and as Jesus began to let this play out he finally speaks to the crowd and he says let the person who's without sin cast the first stone one by one they drop their stones and they walk away the conversation that happens next is really important Jesus looks at the woman and he says woman where are your accusers she says they've gone he says, does anyone condemn you? She says, no. And then Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. But go and leave your life of sin. What Jesus was giving to her was respect, acceptance for where she was. He was refusing to judge her. But now he was adding the private detail that the rest of the crowd didn't hear that day. There is change that needs to happen. And he was presenting to her that there's a way out of the patterns that were going on in her life. And he was giving her an opportunity to do that. We long for this kind of acceptance. Nobody gets everything right in life. Nobody walks through spiritual development without mistakes and setbacks and turnbacks along the way. But we long for that kind of accepting environment where somebody keeps nudging us forward without landing on us or judging us in the moment. In a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to that kind of radical acceptance because that's what Jesus gave and that's what he calls for from us. Jesus mastered the art of acceptance without having to offer full approval of everything that was going on. So think of it. Why did he come to that tax collector's house, to the home of Zacchaeus? Think of his mission. He left the safety of heaven to come to a broken world. Going to the home of a person who was caught in the world's corruption was simply a continuation of that mission. For an hour or two, perhaps, he blessed the place 
where Zacchaeus lived with his presence. It seems likely that he shared a meal with Zacchaeus and with his friends. And what we do see is that when they emerged, Zacchaeus was a changed man. There's something about the ministry of presence that leads to personal transformation. Here's the principle I see at work in that. Proximity to Jesus plus truth wrapped in radical acceptance leads to change. And that's the kind of change and growth that we seek in our own lives. It always comes as we get closer to Jesus and we find that His acceptance is wrapped in truth and it leads to the possibility of change in our lives. So here's that big idea. Jesus excelled at accepting people even when our patterns need to change. That's true of people in the past. That's true of us today. And he gives us that room to do that. So we come to a conclusion again. Jesus gets us. The question is, do we get Jesus? And do we continue to model ourselves after Jesus? Do we continue to follow Jesus? Some of us need to learn to excel at accepting people where they're at. I think it's an art for us to learn. Some of us need the interchanges that proximity with Jesus can bring. Often we need both at one point or at different points in our lives. Would you like to respond to this combination of Jesus' radical acceptance wrapped in truth, which, can de- which together can lead to change and transformation? Now, there might be a number of reasons why you want to do that. Perhaps something has spoken to your heart and saying, you know, I, I need to do this better. Perhaps you're coming from the other side of saying, that's the Jesus I've been longing for, the one who accept, would accept me where I'm at, knowing that I need to change and would help guide me there. If this speaks to you, I wonder if you would pray quietly this prayer with me that's flashing up on the screen behind me. Lord Jesus, I welcome your presence into my life. I know my heart, my mind, and my patterns need to change. Accept me where I am. Change me from the inside out. And here's the key. Where you lead, I will follow. I really believe if you pray prayers like that from time to time, God will continue to lead you on the path toward becoming more like Jesus, toward becoming the person you really want to be, Because we live in a world that longs for a no-judgment zone, and we serve a Lord who calls us to incredible discernment, to radical acceptance of people where they're at, so that the Word of God can begin to penetrate, and that God can begin to do His work on the inside. Let's pray. Father God, on this rainy, foggy morning, we pray that You would continue to wash away all of the junk of our lives, the blindness, the self-deception, the outright sins and defiance. It would make us more like Jesus, not so that we would feel better about ourselves, not that we would look better than somebody else, but because this has been your goal all along, to reproduce your heart in us and your mindset in us. So, Lord, we ask that your Spirit would continue to work in us Make us a congregation of people who can offer radical acceptance even while we talk about the transforming of power of God who changes us and allow us to experience that transformation in more and more tangible ways 
And as other people find themselves wandering in here to North River, allow them to find an environment that will allow them to grow and allow your spirit to transform us little by little, day by day, week by week. Thank you for giving us such uncommon grace. Help us to live in it, bask in it, protect it, and offer it to others every day. In Jesus' name, amen.